You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 10 a.m. on October 8, 2023, presented by Rev. Chris Duke. We've been uh, gradually working through Romans and uh, uh, I'm not looking at, at uh, how far we've got to go to complete the book. We'll just complete it in God's good time. But we're up to chapter 11, so that's, uh, that's good. But we're only dealing with five verses today. So let's uh, give attention to God's word. Uh, I just normally record this. So Romans 11 verses 1 to 5. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleased with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we come around your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, as we consider these words from the book of Romans, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us, enlighten us to your wonderful grace. And may that be the experience of our hearts, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In recent weeks, as we've been looking at Romans 9 and 10, the question we've been addressing is this question. Why Israel, God's covenant people, rejected the Messiah that was, pro that was prophesied in the Old Testament to come for Israel and the Gentiles? Why is it that God's own chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, where so many Israelites turned their back on the gospel, rejecting the teaching of Jesus Christ and rejecting his claims as the Messiah. And Paul has given three answers to this question and we've already dealt with two of them. In Romans 9, Paul's answer is due to the sovereignty of God and especially God's electing love and mercy in which he has chosen some and passed by others. In Romans 10, his, his answer is about man's responsibility, where Israel's lack of faith is an example of their disobedience. They certainly were knowledgeable, but they had willful disobedience to the word of God. And that's why they refused to believe and why they haven't come to receive the promises made to Abraham. So now when we get to Romans 11, Paul's further argument has to do with another line of reasoning. 
in order to help us to understand Israel's rejection of the gospel. So as we've been looking at these questions, how does this relate to believers today? How are the contents of Romans 11 relevant for everyday Christian living? Isn't the subject of Israel's of, of Israel God's plans, aren't they purely speculative and theoretical and not practical in terms of the way we live out our Christian life? Well, what about a Christian who may be struggling in their marriage or having difficulty with parenting or dealing with serious moral deficiencies or issues in life about belief and doubt or struggling with vocational matters? What is a Christian in this kind of situation to learn about what God teaches about his plan of salvation and Israel's part in it from Romans 11? Now, these are relevant questions. They're good questions. And let me propose four quick answers for you. Firstly, this passage in Romans reminds us of how important it is of us having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. How important it is for us to have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. For in this chapter we're being told about people who they had constant exposure to the scriptures. They had constant exposure to the promises of God. They sat under faithful preaching and teaching for years and years and even centuries and centuries and yet they didn't truly know God. This should remind us that in our communities of faith today, including the church, People can grow in all manners of efforts to know God, but in the end may never know him. Which means that we ourselves need to take care. We need to take care that we're truly trusting in God through Jesus Christ, that we have received him by faith and we're walking with him in a vital personal faith. And Romans 11 reminds us of this stark truth because of the material that it covers. Secondly, this passage teaches us about the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of God. The question that Paul raises is whether God can be trusted. And this is a very practical question for a Christian to answer. Have you ever asked this question? If God failed to keep his promise to Israel, and if he has, of course that's a big if, will he keep his promises to the church? So having a very definite answer to this question, has God been faithful to Israel, is a very practical answer for you in believing that God will be faithful to you also. Thirdly, as we consider this passage, it confirms that our attitude towards the Jewish people ought to be of a sincere desire to see them brought to a saving knowledge of God and faith in Jesus Christ. From the very early days of the church, the Jews indeed persecuted the early Christians. And over the course of years, as the church became more and more made up of Gentiles, 
a certain hostility then grew toward Jewish people. There are many events and many times from the Middle Ages where the treatment of Jewish people was not Christian indeed, especially in various parts of Europe and the Middle East. Yet Paul in this passage confirms what the Christian's attitude toward the Jewish person should be. We should not see them as a people to be mistreated, but those whom we ought to pray to the Lord to be recipients of the Lord's mercy and that they would find the knowledge of salvation through Jesus Christ. Finally, this chapter is about the big picture. It's about God's ultimate plan and that in and of itself is most helpful and practical for us. You know, as we look and we think about our own problems, we often lose sight of the big picture in the detail. If we're struggling in our marriages, if we're wrestling as parents with our kids and we're dealing with their, with their problems, if we're having a hard time at work or, or with our workmates and the details are overwhelming us all, if your problems are sinking you, then it's easy to think that you're never coming back up for air. To be able to stop and look for a moment and realise that we're part of a big plan, a much bigger plan, a plan that's far bigger than our own problems or our own circumstances and particularly in our own situation is very refreshing. You see, when you stand still for a moment and you think, you realise that God's will is not all about us. It's about his plan. It's about his glory, which is not only practical, but it's also essential. Without it, we cease to truly live. So as we look at Romans 11, this isn't a study that's theoretical, rather it's practical and it's essential for healthy Christian living. Why then is the question in verse 1 so important to answer? I say then, has God cast away his people? If Paul were here today, he could give you many answers. However, the major question associated with this question of whether God has rejected Israel is the question, could God reject the church? As Paul has wrestled with the issue of the role of Israel in the plan of God since Romans 9, why is it that God's old covenant people who have been given the scriptures, who have been given the promises, who have been exposed to the truth of the scripture and the teaching from the law, from the writings from the prophets, why would they reject the Messiah and thus reject the gospel if the law and the prophets and all the writings all testified of the Messiah? And so Paul has been wrestling now for chapters 9 to 10, where he directs us to the sovereignty of God, 
and to the mysterious plan of God. And then in Romans 10, Paul reminds us to remember that people are also responsible. People, that is you and I, are responsible to believe because God has made it plain that he is to be believed and he's, be, and he's to be trusted. But Israel in her disobedience refused to believe. So as we come to Romans 11, Paul gives us a third answer to our question. But I want us to note some things before we get to the answer. In verse 1 it says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Another way of saying this, has God has not rejected his people. Paul is leading us to hear his emphatic answer, which he answers, certainly not, absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. So in chapter 11, Paul turns the question around and he asks, has God rejected them? And he answers emphatically, no. What Paul does in the rest of Romans 11 is to tell us why. Paul wants us to know why God's promises have not failed. They have never failed and they never will fail. Our God keeps his covenants, unlike us, who, unlike us who we often break our promises. God never breaks his promises. Has God rejected Israel? The answer is no. God is trustworthy indeed and his word can be taken to be absolutely true. In our passage today, Paul gives two arguments as to why God's promises have not failed and why it is true that God has not rejected his people. And the first argument is from verse 1. It's a one-word argument. Me. Paul is saying, consider or look at me. Now, I don't want you to consider Kath and Kim when we say, look at me. Paul wants you to look at himself. I, Paul the Apostle, I'm the living evidence. I'm the evidence that God has not rejected his people. The second argument is from verses 2 to 5. It is them, them. And so he directs them to look at this Roman congregation. Remember, this letter is to this Roman church and to look all around and look at all the Jewish Christians that are in their presence. Look at those in church. There's your evidence that God has not rejected his people. There is a remnant today. Paul uses how his own salvation demonstrates that God has not rejected his people. Verse 1, Paul says, For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul commences by saying, of course, God hasn't rejected his people. I'm a Jew and I'm a Christian. 
Therefore, God has not turned his back on the promises that he made to his people who believe in him. I'm a Jew and I'm a Christian. Now, please notice how Paul argues in verse 1. Firstly, he is explicit. That is, is he's very open. He describes himself as a Jew in three ways. Firstly, he says, I am an Israelite. Then he says, I'm of the seed of Abraham. And thirdly, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is an Israelite. And friends, no one should ever be left wondering that Paul was anti-Semitic. I'm a Jew myself. I'm of the seed of Abraham. I, I am descended from the one who is the forefather, that is Abraham, who is the example to Israel of faith. I'm descended from him. I'm physically descended from him. And when he tells us that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, he's telling the Romans and us where he is from. You know, people often ask other people, who's your father or who's your mother? You know, it used to be that if you were applying for a job, you're often asked where you were from. You're not allowed to ask that type of question now. But people used to check out your pedigree in an unofficial manner. We get accused today that this could be racist. But sometimes we want to know where you're from. Are you from around here? And Paul comes out openly telling us where he's from and by, and by saying that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Now here he's actually doing some name dropping in making a very good claim. Whilst there were some unpleasant things about the tribe of Benjamin, especially when we read the book of Judges and King Saul was a Benjamite and sadly turned out to be a bad king, but there are some good things about being a Benjamite. Benjamin is the only son of Jacob, later called Israel, who was born in the land. And the city of Jerusalem is situated in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin, in the land of Israel. Furthermore, when the northern tribes, the northern ten tribes, rebelled against the king of Israel, only the tribe of Benjamin stayed with Judah and aligned to the God of Israel. So Benjamin is really a good pedigree. Paul is saying, my pedigree is impeccable. And yet though I am a Jew of Jews, Yet I believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. I'm living proof, I'm exhibit A, if you like, that God has not rejected his people. That's the explicit thing that Paul says. There are obvious things, these are obvious things to see. But there's also the implicit things to see. We need to remember not only where Paul came from, but who he was before he was Paul. Wasn't he first Saul? Saul of Tarsus? Wasn't Saul of Tarsus public enemy number one of the church? 
Wasn't the very existence of the early church in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria threatened by this Saul? Wasn't this Saul the person through whom the church was almost extinguished in its infancy? When the early Christians heard the name of Saul of Tarsus, they saw him as the greatest threat to their own personal welfare. But now Paul is saying, if I can be saved, then anybody can be saved. If there was any Jew who should have been rejected, then it should have been me. But look at me. I'm not only saved, but now I desire to preach the gospel to whoever will hear and especially to the Gentiles. Paul is a living hope. He's living and standing proof that there is hope for us all and there's hope for our family and there's hope for our friends that we so eagerly pray for that they would also turn to Christ and trust in him as their own personal Lord and Saviour. If God can save Paul, then anybody can be brought to the Lord. If anybody should have been rejected, it should have been Saul of Tarsus. And yet God made him an apostle to the Gentiles. We should be encouraged by this because you might be thinking that you've done something in your past that disqualifies you from ever becoming a Christian. And you'll never uh, never be able to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul comes here and says, look at me. Paul openly admits that I am the chief of all sinners. Paul isn't exaggerating here because he means this when he says he's the chief of all sinners and yet God saved him. If you say that you can't can't come to Christ because of your past or something in your past, Paul says that he is first in line. If there's anybody who had something in their past that could keep them from God, that could keep him from Christ, then it's me. But see, now I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a disciple of of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and I'm now telling people about him. So what's keeping you from God? It has nothing to do with your past. It's something in your present It's your refusal to simply trust in him because when you trust in him, you find that he grabs you and he holds you in his his everlasting arms and he saves you from all your sins. It's not your past that's keeping you from Jesus. It's your present. It's your refusal to believe truly in him. Every one of us can come to the Lord Jesus Christ now We can bring all of our burdens to him and have our sins forgiven and we can do it all now. So what's stopping you? You don't have to worry about whether you're elected or not. Remember, we've been reminded in the previous chapters, for those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So firstly... God's continuing mercy to Israel 
is shown in the salvation of the Apostle Paul. Now there's a second thing to look at as well. From verses 2 to 5, Paul makes it clear that God hasn't rejected his people, which is observed by the present remnant of Israel who believe. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's the word for God's foreknowledge. His forelove, his eternal love for his people from before the foundation of the world. Paul says God cannot reject those that he has set his love on before the foundation of the world and he says, let me prove it to you from scripture. And so in verses 3 and 4, Paul reminds us of the story of Elijah. And of course, this uh, a special story, this where the priests of Baal and, and Elijah himself, they had this big sacrifice-a-thon. And they have a contest between Baal and God. And King Ahab and his, his uh, wicked wife Jezebel, they previously organised the slaughter of almost all the prophets of the Lord in the northern kingdom. And so Elijah is felt alone and he's felt isolated and he's felt lost as he's opposed the idolatry of Ahab and Jezebel. For it was Jezebel who introduced the worship of Baal and brought the priests of Baal into Israel. And then Elijah cries out to the Lord God Almighty, Lord, I'm the only one left who believes in you. Have you ever felt like that, that you're the only one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm the only one who worships the God of Israel. The people now worship idols and, and they worship the Baals and the other gods. And now Paul says in verse 4 that God's divine response to Elijah was this. This is what he says. I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, there's still quite a number of people in the land that still worship me. There happens to be 7,000 that I have kept for myself. And Paul inserts those words here in this passage. I have reserved into that quotation to emphasise that it's God's grace that has kept them. It's not anything special in themselves. It's God's grace. It's my grace who has kept them for myself. So if God was keeping a remnant for himself in Elijah's day, he's also keeping a remnant of Israel for today. And as he looks out upon the Roman congregation and he sees Jewish Christians there, he says in verse 5, even so then, 
at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. You're the remnant that God is keeping for himself today at this present time. And since there was a remnant in Elijah's day, there's also a remnant 2,000 years roughly later. And this is all because of God's gracious choice. Paul expresses it here. At this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. So Paul is emphasising that God continues to show his mercy to Israel with his obvious proof of election of grace, of his gracious choice with a continuing Jewish remnant who believe in the Messiah, those who believe in Jesus Christ. There are still Jewish Christians and there always have been in every generation. And this reminds us of the mercy of God for surely Israel should have done better than she did. And yet God continues to be per pervasive in his mercy towards Israel and God's mercy towards the likes of us as well. And, that, and this ought to make us extremely hopeful for his mercy for others as we desire his mercy for others. So in our passage today, Paul is reminding us that God can be trusted. And in the end, when someone stands and believes in the Lord and embraces him for salvation, it is all due to his gracious choice and the mercy of God. Now, I actually hope and pray that you find those thoughts comforting today because as it applies to Israel, it also applies to us. That God is gracious, that God is merciful. Our God is not only loving, he's also merciful and he's also gracious. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, indeed we thank you that you are a loving, merciful and gracious God, that you indeed uh, are merciful to your people and you call your people to yourself. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that that you would work in our hearts and our lives and enable us to truly believe and trust in you and be part of your family. And Lord, we pray this for all those who are lost at this moment, who don't know you as Lord and Saviour. We pray, Lord, that you would do a work in their lives and, Lord, that you may even use us, Lord, in telling them about the salvation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray for your grace and your mercy, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in a moment, we're going to um, uh, take up the offering. We're going to respond to God's word through uh, our, um, our tithes and offerings and also in praise as we sing our next, uh, next hymn, which is um, uh, to God. More messages of hope at Essendon Presbyterian Church dot org dot au or wherever you get your podcasts from